0: This is the Transportation Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on MarketScale.
1: Just to try to reduce crashes and keep traffic moving smoothly, they're going to want a computer behind the wheel rather than a human.
0: If problems mean more money spent on
2: transportation, it can hurt your bottom line.
3: Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. Market Scale recently traveled to the Chicago Auto Show to scope out the latest trends in the automotive industry. And this week's episode of the podcast features conversations with representatives from three different automakers who give us their thoughts on emerging technology for cars. Now, I know for some, when they hear the words car show, they think revving engines and popped hoods. But car shows are increasingly becoming as much a place to show off new technology as they are an avenue to display the latest V6. So in this feature, we're going to take a look at what three experts on hand at the Chicago Auto Show had to say about technology and where it's going in the automotive industry. I think it's a really interesting conversation. And I'm going to be walking you through those conversations that we have with those three individuals. In our second feature, we're going to have a conversation with an expert on railroads. His name is Gareth Dennis, and he's a senior permanent way engineer, and he's going to talk about how extreme weather can really have an impact on the railways. And I think this is a really interesting conversation to have, especially in light of the polar vortex that recently swept through the Midwest of the United States, and also just the hot summers that some places experience as well. Both of those, both the cold and the hot, can have an effect on the railroad systems. And so we're going to talk to him about that and really get his insight into how engineers like himself can plan and prepare and how they go about preparing railroads for whatever mother nature is going to throw at them for any given season so that's coming up as the second feature on today's show but without further ado let's dive into the chicago auto show and the tech trends that we experienced there coming up next here on the market scale transportation podcast (laughs) As long as there are people who love getting under the hood and getting grease on their hands, the conversation surrounding cars will always revolve around horsepower and RPMs. I don't think that's ever really going to change. But another topic has entered the conversation, and it will only continue to grow in volume and importance, and that is the one involving tech and connectivity in vehicles. MarketScale visited the Chicago Auto Show with an eye towards the future, and in this feature we're going to look specifically at the intersection of technology and automobiles. Matt Slausher, the manager of public relations for Acura, does a good job summarizing the importance of connectivity for automakers.
2: Well, connectivity is as important as just about any other feature in a car today. Um, So uh, yeah, we are starting to roll out uh, cars that are connected. Uh, cars that feature over the air update capability which is amazing because as you own the car it actually gets better. The new third generation RDX is the first Acura deployed with our new HMI called True Touchpad Interface. Uh, It's got a 4G hotspot connection in the car um, and we've already pushed at least one update to the car. It went on sale just in June and we've already pushed one over the air update uh, that not only fixes uh, uh, some issues that we've noticed in the field but actually enhance and push new features to the car. Um, and that's gonna continue so as you own a car for four five six seven years it'll get better
3: and it's not just connecting users to their phones and other areas of their lives as he mentioned it's the ability to push software updates out to cars ensuring that the tech inside them is still viable years down the road
2: we can make the ownership experience improve over time um, uh, essentially people's expectations for devices today are shaped on their relationship to a smartphone where there's an update every few months. So I, I think telling particularly a younger buyer that you're going to buy a new car and it's going to be luck that way for six years um, is simply not palatable to them. Um, it, it doesn't work that way in their minds. Um, they want their cars to adapt just like their phone does over time. Um, so that's why it's, re- it's a really powerful thing for us to be able to deliver on that for the customer.
3: However, the goal in adding technology to vehicles looks different across various manufacturers. Take this guy.
1: My name is Bob Gleick. I'm with uh, Lexus Motors out of Plano, Texas, and I'm a product trainer.
3: He explains the two goals for Lexus in adding technology to their vehicles, noting that one of their objectives is to mirror the connected objects that you have in your car to the ones that you already have in your home.
1: Well, I, I see two things. One, to be able to communicate better with, with the world and to be able to customize your vehicle to another level. The other thing I look at is, is being having flexibility to have all of these different products in the car at one time. We're trying to cater to what you already have in your home. So if you have a, a dot, an Echo Dot, or if you have a Google uh, Home device in your home, you can you don't have to buy anything special to update your vehicle. It's already there.
3: The addition of technology to the vehicle to help keep drivers connected to their larger ecosystems is obviously important, but driver safety is another vital area that can be impacted by the addition of new tech.
1: My name is Bill Gubing, G-U-B-I-N-G, and I am the chief engineer of the Explorer and the Police Interceptors.
3: Bill is going to go on to explain some of the ways that Ford is using technology to make the driving experience safer for drivers.
1: So This car is full of adventure-ready technology and it really starts with our Ford Co-Pilot 360, which is standard across all models. And the Ford Co-Pilot 360 includes such features as automatic emergency braking. Uh, blind spot monitoring with trailer tow capabilities. So now not only are you protected in your blind spot, but also in your trailer's blind spot for as you're changing lens. It comes with rear camera and full wash capability. So you tap your, uh, headl- uh, your uh, windshield washers and it automatically washes the rear camera lens for you as well. Uh, auto high beams, auto headlamps, uh, really great features that make up the Ford Copilot 360.
3: One question that is frequently raised regarding technology and cars is the advancement of autonomous vehicles. Some stories would have you believe that we're mere days away from never again sitting behind the wheel, only serving as passive bystanders while robot cars drive us from place to place. For some that sounds like paradise, for others that would be torture. But to Bob Gleit, all this talk is still a little bit premature.
1: Well, we're walking at it, looking at autonomous vehicles. I mean, there's so many steps to get to a true autonomous but if you look at our cars right now, we have the parking sensors, we have collision, we have collision avoidance, we have uh, lane change or lane keep assist. We have all these other products built into the cars already to give you that feeling of security and safeness while you're driving the car.
3: For now, it sounds like manufacturers will continue to focus on making the driving experience safer and more enjoyable for drivers, and tech will play an increasingly large role in that endeavor. This is Tyler Kern for MarketScale, signing off from the Chicago Auto Show. For all of MarketScale's coverage of the Chicago Auto Show, head over to MarketScale.com, click on the Industries tab, and scroll down to Transportation. There you'll find videos and written content covering the show as well, along with this podcast, so you'll have the full width of the MarketScale coverage there of the show. That way you can stay up to date with the latest trends going on in the automotive industry. Coming up next, my colleague Daniel Litwin sat down with Gareth Dennis, and he's a senior permanent way engineer and all-around railroad expert. And he's going to talk about how extreme weather like the polar vortex or heat waves in Texas can really cause problems for railways. And he's going to talk about how those things can be avoided and what engineers like himself do to really prepare for extreme weather circumstances. So it's going to be a great conversation. That is coming up next here on the Market Scale Transportation Podcast.
0: So for this feature, I'm pleased to rewelcome Gareth Dennis. He is a writer and a senior engineer at Permanent Rail Engineering, and Gareth is rejoining us to chat a bit about how railways cope with the more extreme hot and cold temperatures that we've been seeing a lot recently. The United States had a polar vortex here, which was definitely quite the buzz, and we were looking at negative 60 degree Fahrenheit wind chills. So our railways definitely had a lot to deal with, and Gareth is here to give us a little insight on how railways have dealt with this, how technology is helping them improve this process, and really look at how rails and the entire public transit system adapt to um, fluctuating weather. So Gareth, great to have you back on the podcast. It's been a while, but I'm looking forward to chatting. How are you doing today?
4: I'm well, thanks. Good to, good to talk to you again, Daniel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, following you on Twitter is definitely a treat. I love seeing all your, um, all your transportation tweets, but then you also keep me up to date on a lot of UK politics, so I, I feel <laughs> like you're, you're making me a more well-rounded man.
4: Yeah, sorry about that, but there, hopefully there's plenty of fun <laughs> transport stuff on there anyway.
0: Yeah, a nice mix. Okay, so let's jump into our main topic here. Gareth, I know I sort of already prefaced here the United States, especially the Midwest and the northern Midwest areas, had a pretty brutal polar vortex where, just out of the blue, we had deep, deep freezes and temperatures that were um, pretty pretty brutal. Um, We had people that literally froze because of the temperatures. Um, So, you know, it was kind of a humanitarian crisis to a degree. Um, And there are a lot of conversation points with the polar vortex from uh, building management and how architecture can Um, help insulate homes more effectively against difficult weather like this. But something we haven't talked about is public transit systems and how they fought to stay functional during um, these difficult polar vortex periods. So has the UK seen anything quite as drastic recently?
4: Well, yeah, no, so nothing quite as extreme as you guys have been dealing with over the last um, sort of a few weeks now, really, isn't it? That you've had these extreme uh, cold temperatures. So um, but we've 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 got experience of pretty some pretty um, epic extremes. of our own if you consider that we have a temperate climate that um you know so we do push the boundaries up and down but i mean you, you there, there's there's some pretty impressive pictures of um of some points heating that you guys have in america you kind of do it the old-fashioned way which is you fire gas heaters and flames shooting up through the track to make sure that the points to let tra- trains move from one side can one track to another can still work so there are some pretty extreme images but actually To keep the infrastructure system running, you've got a huge range of things happening. So, you know, you've got to account for the fact that drivers need to be able to get to the trains in the first place. And if their road is clogged up, they've got to deal with the snow. You've got to deal with clearing platforms so it's safe for passengers with ice and snow. You've got to deal with the fact that the trains maybe don't perform as well. They, the the fuel efficiency isn't as good, or maybe the wires, um, the overhead wires freeze. So there's a huge range of things that the 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 railway has to deal with. Um, you know, extremes of temperature also mean that you know when you, uh, steel um, shrinks when it's really cold, just like it expands when it's hot. And so actually, you get an increased number of rail breaks uh, going on. So that's actually where the rail, you know, these huge lumps of of steel that form rails actually snap because it's so cold. So it's it's likely that that actually there are quite a few rail breaks going on across across America in this extreme cold. So a huge range of different things from operational to engineering um, things that you have to deal with. So in the UK, we've had um, a, a year or two ago, we had some pretty extreme deep snow. Uh, and obviously you need to get snow off the railway because above a certain depth, the trains are just going to get derailed by it. So you have all sorts of snow plows and snow blowers and lots of pretty impressive looking equipment to clear deep snow away. I'm glad you brought
0: up the imagery for those railways. It typically has me thinking of like a Mario Kart level flying through Bowser's Castle. There's flames erupting out of the tracks, and it is definitely a cool sight. Um, But it's interesting to think about that technology that you have literal gas pumping flames up through um, the tracks and that's keeping snow and ice from accumulating though I feel like there are other alternatives that are a little more efficient and not quite as scary <laughs> to look at as you're driving by on your um, you know on your commute to work uh, Tell me a bit about some of the alternatives that the UK uses for keeping tracks clear during heavy snow or icing um,
4: yeah basically the harsher cold weather. In the UK we don't have quite the extremes of temperature so we we get away with using electricity uh, uh, so we have these long sort of resistant strips of metal that we pump a load of electricity into which heats up a bit like just a heating element in your electric kind of three bar fire that heats up and that melts the ice uh, along the rail and that allows the rail particularly through switches and crossings where you need the rails to move freely and without getting clogged up and so that works down to about minus 20 degrees celsius but clearly, you guys at the moment are having much more extreme temperatures than that. So, for example, in Sweden, again, they use electricity, but everything just has to be a bit more beefy. They need a bigger power source and um, they need to have a chunkier metal along the kind of the, the, the resistance strip needs to be that, bit t- that much tougher. Um, so electricity does work uh, down to the extreme temperatures, but you, you've got to have a pretty hefty system uh, and clearly actually um, maintaining that tougher system maybe the cost benefit of having flame versus electricity uh, kind of evens up a bit
0: so on the maintenance side of things i feel like when you're dealing with extreme temperatures and you have a massive public transit system You're sort of prepared for this. This isn't like a a secondary thought. Oh, wow, now we have to deal with extreme weather and how are we going to keep our trains and our metros running um, on icy tracks? That is probably part of the process of getting a successful public transit system off the ground. But the maintenance side of things, I think, can be more unpredictable um, because not only are you having to do um, predictive and reactive maintenance on just general things with your public transit system, but as soon as you get unpredictable weather, that can often, like you said, break some of those steel beams. It can um, create fractures in the railing. Uh, It can maybe cause an accident, um, whatever. There are many options for how this could affect the public transit system. How are you seeing the maintenance side of keeping these tracks in order? be affected by some of these more extreme weather events. And I know here in the States, I think we're starting to see them pop up more frequently. And I don't want to say that definitively because I'm not a climatologist, but it does feel like we're seeing, at least in parts of the country where they're not used to seeing extreme weather, more of these brutal attacks of either extreme cold or heavy rain or um, thunderstorms or whatever it might be, disastrous tornadoes. Um, It just seems to be mounting up. So tell me a bit about the maintenance side of things and how you're seeing that react to more unpredictable weather.
4: So, yeah. So in the olden days, we got around this by having kind of local teams of about 20 guys, and they had maybe a mile or two of track each. And so no matter what the weather was, extremes of temperature, uh, low, high, or snow, they'd have gone out and they'd have just maintained it. And because it was a small, because it was a local team, they knew how to deal with the, the weather best. Clearly today, we don't have the big workforces and we have, have much uh, more intensively used railway networks. And so you have to be much more, as you say, predictive, reactive. You have to kind of be on top of those extremes almost before they're impacting on services. So if we if we kind of go to the other side of the world right now, we look at Australia. So you guys are having the extreme cold. I mean, the, our planet is a single system. At the other end, Australia are having extremes of high extreme high temperatures. And so they're having the opposite problems for their railway system so for example if you if you heat up a metal clearly expands so if you're heating up rails to maybe 40 50 even 60 degrees celsius in extremes um being baked under the sun those rails can expand by up to a meter every every mile, so you know the, the huge expansion of, of, of the length of the rail, and that needs to be accommodated so that you don't get rail buckles. I'm sure you've all seen those pictures of of really buckled rails that clearly you can't run any trains over. So they've got the opposite problems that um, that you guys have at the moment in the cold. Uh, they have to uh, they have to manage that those thermal forces, those longitudinal thermal forces in the rail, and one of the ways they do that is by having joints in the tracks. So lots of joints, and they have a little expansion gap uh, between them. And those expansion gaps close up as the rails get hotter. And and your railway, uh, you don't have too many forces building up, and fine. The trouble is, those joints take a lot of maintenance. And they have a habit of breaking up under traffic when you've got intensive uh, railway services being run. And they're just not very good for the modern railway. So actually, what we do nowadays is that we we have lots of long welded rails. So we actually weld all of our rails together. So you can have several mile long bits of, of individual rail. But obviously, if those are huge, long lengths of rail, the thermal forces must get get huge. Actually, no. What we do is we pick, depending on the country you're in, you pick a, a temperature that is going to be pretty much the top end that you expect in normal conditions we chop a length of the rail out, and we actually pull the rail together and weld it up so that there's a constant tensile force up until you get to that kind of upper level uh, temperature. So in the UK, for example, we have that, it's called a stress-free temperature of 27 degrees Celsius. So we cut a section out of our rail and pull it together and weld it so that up until 27 degrees, there's a constant tensile stress. And when you, so if we apply that, it's, in a process called stressing we apply that tensile force and it stops the rails from buckling and so only over 27 degrees of rail temperature do we start needing to look after the track and, and maybe send people out to watch it and make sure and actually the 27 degrees above that you only have a small compressive force for about another maybe 15 20 degrees maybe more um, and actually the ballast piled up next to the track and also the strength of the track materials hold the track in place so clearly, somewhere like Australia, where perhaps you have um, hotter temperatures, then maybe your stress-free temperature might be higher. The challenge, of course, comes where you've got ex- more extremes of hot and cold, and so actually, in some parts of the world, they actually you go out and stretch their track twice: once for summer and once for winter. But that's still a lot less maintenance-intensive than maintaining lots and lots and lots of joints. So that's one example of of how we manage kind of uh, the, the kind of planned maintenance to ensure that we're ready to deal with extremes of temperature.
0: I mean, it still sounds like a bit of a headache if you aren't totally prepared or if the weather event comes out of literally nowhere and it is an extreme weather event. I mean, there's there's typically other things that you need to be worrying about, like the the public transit system isn't the the final piece. I mean, there's if it's something disastrous, you know, you need to be worrying about public safety and perhaps evacuation. But If it's something not that disastrous, right, something that is just impacting day-to-day operations, then I feel like the public transit system, if that can operate, then it's sort of a good sign that the rest of the city can pull itself together and function. Um, Do do you feel a lot of pressure from businesses and just from individuals that... During extreme weather events, we need to have the public transit system operating because I mean, I know in especially European cities, larger ones, often the only way people are getting to work is on that public transit system. There isn't as much of a culture of single car ownership. And if it's pouring rain or it's freezing or it's sweltering hot, people aren't going to want to ride their bike or walk to work, you know, taking the Metro is going to feel convenient. So do you get a lot of pressure from, from companies, from businesses, and even from the individuals to keep things operational? And then how do you, how do you balance the maintenance with then sort of the, the social maintenance too, right? Of responding aptly to people's concerns.
4: Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, both in winter and summer, you know, in winter, particularly at Christmas, say, when people are kind of going home for Christmas to see their family, um, you have a big surge in ridership on the railway at the same time as often you have extreme cold and snow and all of these sorts of challenges for the railway to maintain. Likewise, in summer, when you've got all these, um, the, the rails getting hotter and the risk of buckling going up. um Often you've got, you know, commuters and travelers and the peak of temperature can coincide with the holidays when people are traveling by train to get to their, to either get home to go to holiday or, you know, these sorts of things. So the best way we can, and there's definitely pressure to ensure that you're optimizing the safety of, of the traveling public, which is clearly our number one priority with ensuring that also Um, There's the safety element of not having people crowded into stations because the trains aren't running. And also the social element, exactly, the social and commercial element of making sure people can get to work and can get home to see their families. So the best way we can do this is by looking back at past experience and essentially having an action plan. So rather than just reacting kind of a bit blindly and kind of running around like headless chickens, we've got lots of plans that we put into place that we know that to have extra staff ready at stations to clear platforms extra drivers ready if other if their colleagues can't get to the train on time lots of preparation and planning so we have huge amounts of of action plans about um, extremes of, of of rainfall as well of course with flooding um extremes of snow um and temperature of course is a key one so it's all about planning ahead and, and and really preparing across and it's not just the infrastructure manager obviously they have to work where you've got infrastructure and train operations being separate there's got to be a lot of close working between those groups to make sure that everyone's working together pushing the same direction so that we keep everyone safe and keep everyone in the on the move but definitely there's pressure but that's part of why you go into this industry is because you know you want to make sure that you're delivering the best for uh, for your passengers and freight freight customers
0: Well, Gareth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and giving us this insight into how public transit systems deal with more extreme weather and obviously dealing with keeping your riders safe and happy because happy riders, safe riders means a successful public transit system. So, Gareth, thanks again. Uh, Why don't you tell our audience where they can follow you on Twitter and on social media to follow up on all your great public transit, transportation, thought leadership.
4: Yeah, thanks, Daniel. So, um, uh, at Gareth Dennis, on Twitter, or just uh, search Gareth Dennis on Twitter, and you'll find me ranting and raving about public transport and sustainable transport more widely. But uh, thanks, thanks again, Daniel. Absolute pleasure as always.
3: Thank you to Gareth Dennis for joining the podcast today, and thank you so much to my colleague Daniel Litman for conducting that interview. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of another episode of the Market Scale Transportation Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of the show. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, head over to that Market Scale Transportation industry page and you can find more content just like this, more podcasts, more written content, as well as videos there. You can uh, spend some time browsing around and see all of the B2B content that we have housed there. Thank you again so much for listening to this episode of the show. We will have another episode of the Market Scale Transportation podcast shortly, but until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you for listening.